Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, we're going to be talking about the situation in Hong Kong. The purpose of Spirit in Action is to talk to those doing world healing work in the hope that the motivation and strength to do that kind of work will be passed along to you, our listeners. We attempt to do this a bit differently than many broadcasters, including the fact that we attempt to look for the light, as I would put it in Quaker speak, trying to find the good that is being done, not just focusing on all the things that are wrong in the world though there surely are a lot. A second feature of our program is that they are not just centered on the latest media sensation. In fact, I believe that a big part of the problems we have is born of a lack of understanding, often stemming from a lack of historical and situational perspective. We like to remedy that kind of ignorance, and often my own ignorance is being dispelled as well by working on the big picture. This approach tends to make our programs evergreen of enduring value instead of just a glitzy, shallow look at an event which loses relevance in no time at all. So even though today's topic, the uprising in Hong Kong over the past few months, is a prominent current event, we hope that you'll get from today's show a depth and breadth of understanding that you're not getting from other media sources. As we speak with today's guest, Jerry Hoy, we think you'll grasp parts of the picture of what's going on in Hong Kong that simply can't be conveyed in a five-minute so-called analysis. I think you're going to really appreciate this one, both because of our guest and because of the comprehension I believe you'll finish with. We're fortunate to have Andrew Jansen providing production assistance today, but I'm also pleased to have as co-host here today for Spirit in Action, David Huber, who is president of the board of directors of Northern Spirit Radio and pastor at Plymouth UCC here in Eau Claire. We also have a special guest. David, could you introduce that guest? Yes, I'm happy to have with us today Jerry Hoy, Assistant Professor of Music at UW-Stout and also the director of the Scuola Cantorum Choir that I'm in, which is how I got to know him, but who also happens to be from Hong Kong. So very excited to have him today to talk about uh, his Hong Kong experiences and some history of that. And Jerry also was just there in June, so was uh, around for the protest. So very excited to hear your stories. I'm pretty sure that most Americans are woefully underinformed about the history of China and specifically about the special status that Hong Kong has had since 1800s. Could you give us a thumbnail sketch of it? I don't need all the dates and details, but enough so that we understand why Hong Kong is not Taiwan and why it's not mainland China and what it is. Sure. Again, thanks for having me here to talk about this whole business with Hong Kong that's happening right now is near and dear to my heart. And I feel like if nothing else, the best thing I can do is to just talk about it so more people understand it. So I, I really appreciate this opportunity. In a sort of quick way to sum up the situation, the context rather of Hong Kong, I would say Hong Kong has always been a place that is in between countries. 
or in between powers, if you will. Back in sort of the mid 19th century, Hong Kong was partially given away, conceded to Britain by、um, the very last dynasty of China, Qing Dynasty. Over two separate wars, Hong Kong Island was given away, and then part of what is called Kowloon is also given away. But Britain later on also requested to quote lease the rest of what is now considered Hong Kong. To be part of a British colony, to be joined with Kowloon and Hong Kong Island. That's how we got to Hong Kong as a city, as a place that is separated from China in terms of just sovereign country, even though physically it is connected. Hong Kong has a land border adjoining China, so if you just go north enough, you will eventually reach a border, and then you will have to cross the border and go into China. The British colonial status continued all the way until 1997, when the lease ran out, and China and Britain decided to follow us a kind of process to somehow return Hong Kong to China, but under a very special condition that is now called the One Country Two Systems. That is something that has not really happened anywhere else in the world. The system you can consider it a little bit like a colony, with the odd exception being that if you have a colony, there will be a foreign power essentially ruling over the colony itself, right? But for Hong Kong, under this one country, two systems, Hong Kong is technically part of China, so we're not ruled over by a quote foreign power, but we still have a very separate system. Completely separated from China, tax money, for example, stays within Hong Kong. The tax system is completely closed within the city. We do have our own government. We even have our own judicial system that is a hundred percent separated from China. So, if you end up in some kind of lawsuit, eventually you will get all the way up to the Supreme Court of Hong Kong. And it does not go up into the jurisdiction of China. We run under a completely different set of laws that are primarily based on the British system, and is very different from China. And really, is this particular separation of the judicial system between Hong Kong and China that is sort of the main point of dispute, if you will, over the summer? You grew up in Hong Kong. I mean, that's where you lived until I think you came to the United States, or maybe you had—I forget if you had a, a detour before you got here. But you left already. The status had changed. The 1997 transfer had happened. Was there a big difference before 1997 and after? Did you see something that impacted your life, your family's life, your friends' lives? Oh, do I? <laughs> so I do remember even just staying awake and seeing that changeover in 1997. I was still in high school, and it was sort of celebrated, if you will, in Hong Kong. But at least the first few years, so from when Hong Kong changed over to China up till I left for、um, the United States. Not too much changed at that point, other than the logo、uh, on a lot of the government official buildings, the flag, and some other just sort of administrative things. And that was part of the promise within this one country, two system, as well as part of the what is called the joint declaration between China and Britain that was signed in 1984. We were promised 50 years where things will be unchanged, lifestyle will remain the same. Deng Xiaoping, who was the president of China during 
early 80s, he actually had a pretty famous unofficial summary of the joint declaration and how it will affect Hong Kong. He said, the horse races will continue and you all can continue to dance. <laughs> that, that's the way that he put it. That are, are those things that are forbidden in the main part of China? Actually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no that, dancing? Oh, my God, I'm not yeah. going there ever. Okay, so, so slightly additional context. Around the, maybe since the 1940s, all the way up till the 80s, there were a lot of active nightlife in Hong Kong, mostly catering to sailors who were coming into Hong Kong with either the Navy... British Navy, or with uh, various cargo ships doing business in Hong Kong. So there's a very vibrant nightlife. That is something that is definitely considered sinful by the Communist Party. So that will not happen. And so when Deng Xiaoping said, continue to dance, we should add air quotes to dance. Okay. <laughs> there, there is prostitution. Yeah, that conjure up all those images that are maybe more well-known for British people as well as um, folks in Hong Kong. There was a very stereotyped character named Susie Wong that actually has made it in some like niche pop culture in Britain at certain point in the 60s. Um, Susie Wong is essentially a shorthand for prostitutions in Hong Kong. So you said that when the transfer happened, people were kind of ready to celebrate, too. What were they looking forward to in terms of the connection with China? Had, had it been difficult to travel back and forth between Hong Kong and China up until 97? No, traveling from Hong Kong to China was actually quite easy. That whole process was drastically improved ever since about late 70s, early 80s, once the Cultural Revolution ended in China. That got all wrapped up in 1976. That's when Deng Xiaoping eventually took over the place of Mao Zedong and started opening up the country. I can't remember exactly when Hong Kongers were sort of allowed an easier process to go back to China and visit families and whatnot. But definitely by the early 80s, that was a pretty easy thing. Something that I think a lot of people in Hong Kong were looking forward to as a potential improvement by being part of China again was probably economic. There had been business deals that a lot of Hong Kong businessmen would partake doing business in China. Obviously, there's sort of an untapped consumer market everyone talks about still to this day. But there's also the fact of cheap labor. <laughs> that was probably the thing that really got China started as an economy. That all happened in the mid-late 80s through 90s, where more and more factories in Hong Kong moved northward into China and started setting up shop in uh, nowadays Shenzhen, Guangzhou, and some other cities and areas that are pretty close to Hong Kong, maybe within like three to hours of a truck drive max. So as Hong Kong was returned to China in 1997, I think a lot of people were hoping that that sort of collaboration, economic collaboration, will just continue and that will bring more prosperity across Across the land, and everyone will be happily ever after. Oh, and that didn't happen? That did somewhat. And again, there's sort of a honeymoon period, if you will, when Hong Kong was returned to China. For really about three to four years, I'd say, that happened. There were a lot of interesting advantages, if you will, that China gave to Hong Kong to attract even more investments from Hong Kong. 
Examples might be cheaper land leases for you to build factories. There are certain discounts. There are certain tax incentives, tax write-offs, and many other things that China wanted to make sure that investors in Hong Kong feel even more. <laughs> Hong Kong investors feel more invested uh, into doing business in China. Has the uniting of the two economies has that been part of what has changed the economy of mainland China? Because you know, all of a sudden, you're when you're rubbing elbows with people who do things differently, it's like, well, I want what they got. I was wondering if some of this dynamo that we see in China right now isn't significantly coming from the influence of Hong Kong people working side by side. Certainly. There are a lot of things that are currently happening in China that, and this is my personal opinion. And remember, I'm not a political scientist or historian, so my very outsider opinion on this is that much of China's prosperity was indeed built upon Hong Kong, and I'm not even just talking about sort of materialistic prosperity, but also sort of the idea of desire, personal desire, what people wanted. What people are still wanting in China, so much of it is really coming from Hong Kong. Before the ha handover, there are multiple terms, by the way, that people can talk about. The event that happened in 1997, handover, is the official way that China like people to describe it. It sort of signifies a willingness to to give up Hong Kong's sovereign status. To China peacefully, and then there are also other people might might consider that a takeover. Some people might call it a changeover. I believe changeover is the one that Britain likes to use. But well, words aside, I would say that really in the 80s, when the investors in Hong Kong started doing business in China, that was also the time when the lifestyle of Hong Kong was slowly exported over the border and got into China. Chinese people remember at this point, were just getting out of a really oppressive time where the communists were really trying to strong hand the communist way on the people over cultural revolution. Everybody had essentially two different types of uniform they can choose to wear. For example, the government would give it to you, so you don't have to buy it. Thank goodness, but there were only two to choose from. You were assigned land, and you have to farm, so on and so forth. It was a very strange time. When the eighties came, the country was slowly opening up to the rest of the world, and Hong Kongers came in with their money, with their factories. But along with them, their TV shows, their books, and even more dangerously, I guess, to the Chinese government, their way of thinking. That's really when mainland Chinese people were starting to have this idea, understanding of what it means to be an individual, individualism. It all started with the materialistic wants, of course. Who doesn't want a giant color TV that is, you know, twelve inch wide? <laughs> the um, seriously in the good old days. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It was a very common scene for someone visiting China for a lot of Hong Kong folks to go back to China and essentially visit their distant family in China during the eighties and even early nineties. And every time they crossed the border, they would have to. I stress, they would have to bring a lot of goods. With them, or literally, the distant families would not talk to them at all. So often, they would bring like you know a couple 
color TVs, some radios, clothing, food, like snacks for kids. Movies, uh, movies, songs. <laughs> yeah, everything. You name it. But actually, it's really mo a lot of machineries. That was the biggest thing. Especially machineries from, like, say, Japan. If you were really rich, you would bring a VCR made by Sony. Oh, wow. Ooh, yeah, that's a big one. Talking about bringing stuff into mainland China that the families would bring reminded me of back in the 80s in the U.S., like people going to, to Russia would take suitcases of jeans that they could sell for great money over in Russia. Did that happen in China as well? Actually, no. I'm pretty sure most of the stuff that were brought into China were just staying within the families. There was really no money to go around. So you can't really sell things for anything. The other question, I'm thinking of in the, in the United States, we had a lot of Cubans that fled during Castro's time, come to the U.S., and have been very vocally opposed to any time there's been a movement to normalize relations with Cuba because they remember what it was like. And Hong Kong, I know we had a lot of people that fled there during the communist revolution and then the Great Leap Forward and then the Cultural Revolution. Was there, of those people that had fled China and come to Hong Kong, was there a, any movement by them to try to stop the handoff or the changeover in 97? No. That's actually one thing that's very perplexing to me is that true, there were a lot of refugees from China coming down to Hong Kong, especially in the 1940s when, you know, the communists were establishing power. And really all the way up till the 60s to early 70s, a lot of people fled from China down to Hong Kong for various reasons, mostly to, you know, they fled for their life. But a lot of these people who came down to Hong Kong they had ties still with China emotionally. In some way, they were against the communist rules or the way of living. But on the other hand, especially after China has begun sort of stepping up, if you will, in terms of improvement in lifestyle, a lot of these people who fled down to Hong Kong would actually end up wanting to support China. Partially might be because they still have a lot of families in China. But another part might just be this general idea that, well, after all, we are all ethnically the same folk. So maybe we should just wish them to be also having a better life. Over the 80s, there were actually a lot of disasters, natural disasters that happened in China. And there was a huge flood sometime in the 80s. There were a couple big earthquakes. And every time these sort of natural disasters happened, there would be massive fundraising efforts in Hong Kong. And just out of this tiny, tiny little city, we often sent back so much more money for that cause, foreign aid, compared to a country, any country. Most of the time, we sent more than, say, Japan, or definitely more than the United States. So it's been a very interesting relationship, I guess, emotionally in that regard that a lot of people who fled to Hong Kong from China actually still wanted to see China succeed. Thereby might also sort of tie us back to what's happening now because so much of the fight that you see on the street are really not just a political disagreement, but I think it's more of an identity crisis. I want to get into those details, but I'm still trying to picture one thing. You talk about refugees coming down to Hong Kong from mainland China. 
what kind of border, what kind of refugee status is there? Is there like, uh, you know, the Berlin Wall, the Great Wall of China? What was keeping people from walking across the line? Were there people standing there with guns? How was it enforced to keep these two different cultures separate? Oh, this goes to the geography of Hong Kong. The border is natural. There is actually a tiny little mountain ridge, if you will. It's possible to cross. It's actually not impossible for like anyone to walk over. But imagine you have to take all your young kids and most of your belongings, as much as you want to carry, to climb a mountain and then come back down. Not an easy trip, but possible, which is why there were a lot of refugees coming down. There are, however, only a few suitable passes that you can get through. Otherwise, for the rest of the mountain ridge, it's really steep. It's not high, it's just so steep that it's not practical to cross at every spot. So I believe there weren't any hard borders until about 1946 or 1947, when the British government at that point decided to put up fences and then put up guards at those strategic locations. So it was harder for people to just come through the border massively. But there was also the waterway. So coming down from China, a lot of people actually would have been on a boat and they would come down. Sometimes they rolled themselves. <laughs> they, they rolled themselves down into Hong Kong and they crossed the border. And for actually the longest time, the British government actually had a, I wouldn't say an open border policy, but it would be a very easy process for refugees from China to just claim refugee status. And then within X number of years, they became a Hong Kong resident. So it was not a difficult process. Folks, we're speaking with Jerry Hoy. He is Associate Professor of Music at the University of Wisconsin-Stout here in Wisconsin. Besides living here, he's also lived over in the Pacific Northwest, besides having grown up in Hong Kong. We're really trying to find out what the experience of Hong Kong right now is. So we've given you a little bit of a history lesson. It's been a history lesson for me as well. And I consider myself well-traveled, but I'm still rather ignorant. And I'm so thankful that you're here, Jerry, to help dispel some of the questions that are preventing understanding between our nations and people here, uh, what's going on in Hong Kong. You are listening to Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, Northern Spirit Radio. Org. On that site, we have links to all the guests since 2005. For today's guest, Jerry Hoy, we are linking to a bbc.com website. They have a wonderful Hong Kong profile there. Our guest, as I said, is Jerry Hoy, and his site is also linked on our site. We've had him previously for Song of the Soul, and that's worth checking out. My co-host today is David Huber. He's president of the board for Northern Spirit Radio. Uh, he's a pastor at Plymouth UCC Church here in Eau Claire, and he's an activist in so many ways. Citizens Climate Lobby is a place right now he's putting significant energy into. Again, northernspiritradio.org, links to our guests. There's a place to post comments. You'll find the stations where we are broadcasting across the United States, 40-plus at this point. There's also a donate button, full-time work, but it's supported by you, not by government and not by corporations, by listeners. And alternative voices are so important, which is one of the reasons that Jerry Hoy is here today to talk about the alternative voices being raised right now in Hong Kong. 
Also, remember to support your local community radio station. Community radio is so different, so significantly freer. It is the individualistic voice that our communities can have, not governed by the six corporations who control 90% of our media in the United States. And I was actually wondering about that, Jerry. The media is so influential in people's thinking. I'm afraid that there's many people in the United States who go down horrible rabbit holes simply because they tune into media that is telling them only one narrative and there's facts that they're missing. So what kind of news and information exists for Hong Kong now before has that changed at all? Certainly. A lot of newspapers in Hong Kong, ones that are in print, traditional newspapers, a lot of them by now are partially, if not entirely, funded by pro-China investors. So that does change the way they cover news. It changes the tone that they describe certain things, such as the protest um, that's happening, for example. There aren't a lot of mainstream media. In fact, since about eight years ago, half the TV stations have closed in Hong Kong. It sounds awful, except there were only two to begin with. <laughs> so so there, there were only two conglomerates in Hong Kong for TV stations that were broadcast for free. One was called TVB, and the other one was ATV. And I think ATV stands for Asia Television. ATV was the one that was always pro-China, and they were like that even before 1997. And TVB was the one that seemed to be a bit more pro-Britain, if you will, within the landscape of Britain versus China before 1997. But about eight-ish years ago, ATV closed. They just could not sustain business. But then all of the investors who supported ATV all flocked to TVB. And so now TVB as essentially the only broadcasting TV network is very pro-China. And during their coverage of, say, this summer, it's very biased. But TVB's bias is so well known. And their bias report would be, for example, always putting their cameras from the viewpoint of the police so that you're always seeing police taking sort of decisive actions against the violent protesters. They would also sort of take strategic camera angles so that you would think that there are a lot more violent protesters while there were only like, say, actually five people on the streets. So they earn themselves now a nickname, CCTVB, and CCTV is China Central Television. Uh, so they have basically earned themselves that nickname just by being so biased in terms of their viewpoint. It could be very subtle and is very easy to buy into their viewpoint. But I think by now, so many Hong Kongers are sort of disillusioned by that sort of biased reporting to the point where they, they just accept that. Fortunately, meanwhile, there are a lot of independent media that are just sort of blossoming all over in Hong Kong. There are a couple free newspapers. Some of them are kind of pro-China, some of them less. There are also quite a few online news media that more and more people are reading because they are doing just as much serious reporting. Some of them are very anti-China, and the standpoint is quite clear. And some of them are just slightly more independent. But regardless, it's been very helpful for me, for example, to try to get as many different angles and viewpoints as possible about this protest, just because we have independent uh, reporters on the ground doing live videos, 
And of course, there are more and more people, particularly politicians in Hong Kong, who would actually do Facebook Live as a way to just help other people understand what's going on on the ground. So those all have been really helpful as just sort of part of that complicated media landscape. Are you saying the politicians are doing the more truthful, the ones doing the Facebook Live are doing more truthful kind of reporting, letting people know what's going on? Yeah, I, I would say the um, the politician live videos would usually get you closer to the truth. Obviously, there is a bias from those videos as well, because the politicians who are doing these live videos are almost always supporting the protesters. And so the way that the things that they would say on the ground always sort of have that bias toward the protesters. And that is also quite well understood by, I think, most people in Hong Kong. Some people would choose to not watch these type of videos from politicians, for example, because they are personally more pro-China, or at least they are kind of anti-protest or anti-riot, if you will. So they would choose not to watch these politicians' live videos because they understand the bias that's involved. But on the other hand, you do see what is actually happening on the ground. Within some of these videos, you can actually see, you know, protesters being arrested for doing absolutely nothing. Sometimes worse, bystanders being arrested for doing absolutely nothing. And the politicians might just be there to stop the arrest, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. I imagine our listeners would certainly like to start hearing about why the protesting is going on. But after listening to what you just said, probably many of us, certainly me, wondering, is there the same kind of Internet censorship in the Hong Kong area as there is on the mainland, mainland China, or the same issues with just getting information as there is on mainland? The fortunate answer is no, not yet. In mainland China, a lot of information is under total lockdown. China has been very famous for not just its Great Wall, but also its Great Firewall, is sort of nicknamed since the early 2000s. The government had been very active in creating essentially a series of proxy servers and whatnot to control the internet access within China. So for example, you can't Facebook, Google, YouTube, Twitter... But yeah, there's really a huge host of websites that are unavailable to China because Chinese government is locking it down. That is not the problem in Hong Kong. And I hate to add that word yet, but that's one of the many fears why the current protest is happening is because there's a very clear effort from the Chinese government to just clamp down on all of the freedoms that we have been having for so many years. Maybe we should move our focus now to what's going on right now over in China. Again, you went back to Hong Kong to visit. Uh, you had a month of visit, and which is a wonderful length of time to actually get your feet wet. I don't assume you went to, to be an agitator. I think you just fell into the middle of that. Can you tell us first why people are protesting? The entire protest that's happening now actually began with a murder case. The feel free to play the, the law and order sound. So, <laughs> so there actually was a murder case that happened in Taiwan, of all places, involving a couple from Hong Kong. I believe that was February 2018. A very young couple from Hong Kong, both of them were Hong Kong citizens. They decided to visit Taiwan as just a fun thing to do. But during their stay in Taiwan, the guy actually murdered his girlfriend. And then he went back to Hong Kong. Then the case was investigated in Taiwan, and they ended up with the conclusion that the guy was the killer. 
But the problem was that he is physically in Hong Kong, and there was no extradition agreements between Hong Kong and Taiwan. Therefore, there wasn't a clear and immediate way that this person who was deemed a criminal in Taiwan for him to be transported to Taiwan for justice. So the current government leader, Mrs. Carrie Lam, decided that it would only be right to sort of fix this, what she referred to as a legal loophole, so that she would establish an extradition law between Hong Kong and Taiwan and mainland China. There we we have the problem. So this is the extradition bill that has been sort of mentioned so many times in the news. Is the fact that Carrie Lam wanted to quote again fix this loophole, except there was actually a very clear reason why the extradition was not built into Hong Kong's legal system during 1997. That is because within Hong Kong we have such a separate. And well-trusted independent legal system that's separated from China, but we also at the same time do not have any trust in the current Chinese legal system. And you know, China has a pretty clear track record of deeming sort of anyone to be a criminal, whether there is a real cause or not. Oftentimes, these are political accusation as well, just a way to jail political dissidents and whatnot. So, for example, Liu Xiaobo, the person who was the author of the 2008 Constitution, he wrote this particular document, sort of fighting for human rights and justice in China, and therefore he was imprisoned. And then later on, he died in prison. Well, he quote committed suicide in the prison, and、uh, later on, his wife was also imprisoned in her home until pretty recently that she was allowed to go to Germany to heal from her cancer. But that's essentially an exile, government-sanctioned exile. And this is only one one of many many cases that China is known to use its legal system as a club against its political enemies. So. If there were an extradition law set up between Hong Kong and mainland China, you might now see the biggest problem, the biggest worry that everyone has, and this is not just people in Hong Kong, but the international community as well, that that extradition will create a really scary backdoor, if you will, for China to essentially arrest and take away anyone who is physically in Hong Kong. Sure, you might have killed someone in China and came back to Hong Kong, but just as likely, you might be, say, a CEO from an American firm who owns certain technology that China really wants, and they may decide to arrest you, or that you are being way too vocal about what the Chinese government is doing, and therefore they may want to give you a certain crime that they say you committed, and then take you away. That is the whole underlying problem of this extradition bill, and therefore, since early June, this is why Hong Kongers went onto the streets and continued to protest for by now almost three months. There's one piece I didn't quite understand why it happened that way. Carrie Lam again in the bill said, "Okay, here's Taiwan and Hong Kong. This is what we're going to do about extradition, and we're going to do it towards mainland China as well." Why did she? Is she just very pro-China? Is there something else that I'm not getting about why she would throw in this? What looks like a bad piece of policy? You know what? I think you're not the only one asking this question. I too have been asking this question myself. I have no idea why, and the reason is this: 
China actually relies on Hong Kong's status of being an independent area, where the legal system is independent and well trusted by the international business community. China really relies on this to do business with the rest of the world, and I'm not saying this is only a legal thing. Chinese dollars are still not really an official internationally trading currency. Any transaction that is being done between China and any other country using different money system has to complete the transaction in Hong Kong, so that the Chinese dollars can be converted into Hong Kong dollars, and then to either U.S. dollars or any other thing that you want to move to. So China actually has zero incentive for something like the extradition bill to be passed, such that. Hong Kong would lose its sort of independent status and trust from the rest of the world because this will mean that China will be financially landlocked if that happens. Well, that is perplexing to me. It sounds like mainland China shouldn't be invested in having this bill pass. Carrie Lam, as a Hong Konger, should not be in favor of it. But there must be somebody who's got some policy here that they're pushing. I'm a little bit confused. I think just as many people are confused as well. But of course, there's a sort of common belief in Hong Kong that the political agenda of the Chinese Communist Party is unfathomable and oftentimes defies logic because. Sometimes the conclusion, if you follow the logic, might mean a lot of people getting hurt. So no one really wants to go there because that seems illogical. But that is a potential move. However, in this case, China literally has everything to lose and nothing to gain with this law. So I've been following probably as many analysts or economists or、um, just pundits in Hong Kong about this issue. As much as you know, my mental health can allow it, and、uh, <laughs> no one has an answer. No one can even understand why this is happening. The only possible explanation is actually Carrie Lam was thinking very logically in the sense that hey, we don't have an extradition agreement with mainland China and Taiwan, but we have extradition agreement with Canada. We have that with the U.S., Australia, with the EU, and so many other countries in the world. Why not quote our own country? So maybe she she really came at this from a very logical standpoint, but for some reason, completely not seeing the ramification of what that would bring, which to me seems like she is not very smart. I think, or well, it's either she is absolutely not smart, but I don't believe that's the case because she had a very successful political career. Even during the British colonial government era, she actually started working in the public sector. Since then, and she was very successful. She didn't really seem to be a problematic person. So she's not really not smart about this. But some people conjectured that she wanted to curry some favor from China somehow. I don't know. And with all these sort of general things that the Chinese government is doing—not what they're saying, but what they're doing. There is no indication that Chinese government is actually supporting this extradition bill. They've been talking about we're going to send the army down to Hong Kong or we're going to do this, this, and that. But so far, they have not taken any of the action. And usually, whenever they make a strongly worded press release about the army, the next day or the day after, they would say something to completely soften that blow. 
which would be a very subtle indication that China actually doesn't really support this bill. So so far, things might be in a standstill, mostly because all the administrations, if you will, the Hong Kong government and Beijing. Are really just trying to save face by continuing this, and that seems to be the only possible conclusion. But I don't know. Is saving face worth that many people getting hurt on the street? That I really don't understand. Well, and that was my question. My understanding was the bill has proposed the demonstrations, massive, up to half a million people. And when you're talking about population of between seven and eight million people, half a million people is a really big percentage. Oh, actually, more than half a million. So when I got back to Hong Kong in June, right away people started asking me, "Are you going to go to the protest?" I'm like, "What protest?" And I had no idea until until I read the news, and then I'm like, "I'm going to the protest." So that first Sunday, that very first March, there were one million people on the street on Hong Kong Island. Granted, Hong Kong Island is still not small, but try to stuff one million people, so one seventh of the population of the city, onto the same island. That was a lot of people. So then, nothing happened. There was no response from the government, and almost immediately, people started planning. You know what? We're just going to keep showing up every single Sunday until something happened. So Wednesday, following that first protest, the first sort of violent incident broke out. I think a couple of bricks were thrown at the police. At that time, the police almost right away started using tear gas and using rubber bullets and stuff like that. So that got a lot more people angry. Sort of renewed the effort of people's will to go on the street again the second Sunday. Everybody, including like myself and and some other folks that I know who were going to that protest, we were just saying to ourselves, you know, if we can kind of hit close to one million, this will be a success because, given the general track record of Hong Kongers, it's not that we just have you know a very short attention span, but we are very well known to be always the most pragmatic in the world. So, as long as our daily livelihood is not affected, we would do everything. But as soon as our livelihood, our daily routine lives are affected, we might just draw a line and say, "No, no, no, that's too much." So therefore, going on the street and basically just putting the island on a standstill for two weeks in a row—that seems a little impractical, right? So everybody was thinking, "Nah, it's not going to be a lot of people." Two million people showed up. <laughs> So it doubled, and week after week, I'm just waiting. You know, are people going to lose steam? Are there going to be、um, sort of disputes within the protest movements? And to my surprise, no, it's still going strong. And even though there aren't as many people showing up on the street altogether—not as many as two million—but even say last Sunday, I believe, was yet another peaceful protest.、Uh, 1.7 million people showed up. So the dissenting voice is still very strong, and people are still really united. It's just a matter of the Hong Kong government needs to really take some action, listen to the demands of the protesters, or a lot of people have been talking about the what ifs. What if there's more violence? What if the economy of Hong Kong is going to tank? And So on and so forth, but no one really wants to think too hard about the、uh, what ifs at the moment. Again, surprisingly, still a lot of protesters are still staying very strong in their demand and in their will to continue this. 
how does the law system there work? Is it if Carrie Lamb wants something that therefore it happens? Isn't there the uh, legislative body which is going to pass the law? And with this many people, with one-third of the nation, willing to go into the streets and say, no, you don't do this, how can you find anyone who's possibly going to, say, vote for it? I don't know if voting happens in the same way. As for the legal system in Hong Kong, we do vote, but they will do absolutely no effect by design. There is sort of a system where a law will have to go through that whole process of becoming a bill. The bill would be voted upon and then eventually sort of um, signed by the chief executive, Carrie Lam in this case. But the body that is responsible for voting a bill into action, which is called the Legislative Council in Hong Kong, by design, people can vote for some of the seats in this council, but we will only add up to about 45% of this council. And you might ask, well, who are the other 55? The other 55, many of them comes from this particular type of seats called functional constituency. So this is a really odd system whereby the society itself is divided into a bunch of different professional sectors. So there's, say, a agricultural sector, there's a medical field, there is the education field, there's entertainment, there is business, and so on and so forth, construction. I can't remember how many sectors there are now because they're sort of throughout the years. New ones are added. Some are sort of changed, not quite replaced. But how you would get an official into these seats is that the people who are working in that profession technically would have a vote to vote these officials in. So, for example, as a teacher, if I were to be teaching in Hong Kong, for example, with either a grade school or the university system, then I would belong to the educational sector. And so besides the fact that I can vote as a resident based on where I live, I can vote for a district representative, I will also get an extra vote to vote for an official in the educational field. Who then serves on the council. That's right. The official would be selected from the field, so you would have to be someone that's involved in that field. Now, here comes the problem. When do you get a vote when you don't? If you work for a finance company, let's say you're a hedge fund manager, do you get a vote? You might not actually get a vote. There are certain limitations and whatnot to, to sort of decide whether you are the person who get that vote for the professional sectors. They don't always make sense. The one thing that you can rely on, however, is that if you own a company in that sector, you will get a vote. If you own multiple companies, you might actually have multiple votes, especially if you have companies in different sectors. That particular process, I actually, unfortunately, haven't really read up on too much in terms of the sector votes. But the long story short, this actually guarantees that there are a lot more pro-Chinese votes within this council always than any sort of anti-Chinese votes. Therefore, if a bill is on the floor, if that is a bill that China wants, China gets. So... It looks like a democratic system. It is not. Okay. I am confused about a fair amount of it, but I accept what you just said, Jerry. So I understand that it is tilted towards power. But I had the sense that a lot of the large businesses and sectors are, and given what you said, that China doesn't really want this extradition policy, 
I still don't know why they would be voting for it. But clearly what you're saying is the numbers are there that it would pass if the people weren't stopping it right now. Right. And to understand why a lot of these, quote, professional sectors might not vote or will vote for China, you just have to follow the money. A lot of companies in Hong Kong also have a substantial amount of business they do in China. Even a voting record is technically... Well, you know, no, I take that back. Voting record is open if you are the official in that seat for the legislative council. So it's very easy for China to track down, you know, whether you have voted for or against a bill that China wants, and then they can sort of reward you or punish you accordingly in a financial incentive sort of way. There are a lot of votes that can be sort of persuaded toward China's favor just because of money. Maybe this isn't a question, but just as you were just talking about that, I was thinking of history of colonization and what it has been around the world for a country to have a territory, you know, like we have Puerto Rico, Samoa, and so on and so on. It's, it's, it's just that Hong Kong-China relationship is so backwards from what it should be and that you're not so much the territory in Hong Kong, but that's where all the freedom is instead of in the bigger country. The bigger country is the more oppressive, closed in, and it's the almost the colony in it in a sense that has so much more freedom and has the finances and is driving the economy and has so much of the power. I guess what David you just said is really the million dollar question that everyone is is asking. It really does seem backward, doesn't it? That for a place like Hong Kong really to sort of be treated in a way that is still a colony of sorts that our resource seems to be extracted to no end by the country that's rolling over, that our local culture, history, and and identity is being trampled upon by um, whoever's rolling over and is absolutely ridiculous. It's even more ridiculous by the fact that, you know, we are technically part of China, but it is still happening to us as if we are a colony. So, you know, what gives? <laughs> yeah, to that, to that, I really don't have a, have a great answer. I suppose that was sort of the optimism in, in a way that the world was hoping to see with this sort of unprecedented one country, two system experiment, if you will, I think is still an experiment where maybe because Hong Kong has sort of Hong Kong is so much more advanced in terms of human rights and human freedom compared to where China is. The optimism since the 80s was that maybe this will help bring China up to speed with the rest of the world in terms of human rights and human freedom. But that's not quite happening. So I think we're starting to understand a little bit about what it looks like on the ground there in Hong Kong. Are there any practical things that we can do from our place over here in the United States to help this democracy movement, as I perceive of it? Actually, yes. This particular incident in Hong Kong is actually really tied within this very complicated geopolitics between U.S. and China. There is actually one bill that is about to be discussed in September when Congress returns, and that would be the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act of 2019. It has just been introduced right before the recess, and there is a bill both in the House and the Senate. And if you do feel like you would like to do something to just help out the people of Hong Kong, 
call your members of Congress to ask them to support this particular bill, put their name down there as a co-sponsor. The bill itself doesn't really do a lot of things in a very immediate way, but it will reinforce U.S. commitments to seeing that there is freedom in Hong Kong. So it is important, and it will also add a lot of weight uh, within this particular, this larger geopolitical discussion between U.S. and China, which may also help change China's mind in terms of how much they want to support this particular extradition bill in Hong Kong. So if you do feel you want to help and do something, give your members of Congress a call today. What's the name of the bill again? Bill is called Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act of 2019. I'm also happy to just send you the the links from Congress.gov that has the detail of the bill. We will have those links on NorthernSpiritRadio.org with this interview. So come to NorthernSpiritRadio.org and you can follow that link. Thank you so much for being with us today, Jerry, and talking about this incredibly complex history and present that is Hong Kong that I think has stymied a lot of Americans as to what's going on there. And as you have said, is apparently stymieing everyone around the world, including people in Hong Kong and China. Uh, so thank you for bringing your light to, uh, uh, to what is this very uh, convoluted and, uh, and difficult subject. I feel like I have a, a much better handle on what's going on now, although it's, it's somewhat comforting to know that even someone who is from there doesn't quite have the full handle on what's going on because it is such a, a bizarre thing that's going on. And I want to thank you too, Jerry. Of course, I want to thank you, David, for sitting in. As I said at the beginning, David Huber is president of the board for Northern Spirit Radio. And you'll find links to Jerry Hoy and to bbc.com. They have a Hong Kong profile that you can find additional information on. I've got to thank you for this interview, but I also thank you still for the Song of the Soul program that you shared before. As being a font of choral music here, uh, Scola Cantorum and all the rest, you're bringing such valuable culture to us. You're enriching us culturally here in the Midwest, in Wisconsin, as an associate professor of music at Stout. I thank you for that work, but even more so to bring the extra blessing of understanding of another corner of the world. This is so valuable. So thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you so much for having me here, and thanks for just listening to <laughs> all of that. I suppose it's probably headache-inducing, and honestly, I think everyone, even in the thick of it, is just feeling headache every day, trying to understand what's going on and trying to figure out where it's going. Again, I feel like as someone who is from Hong Kong, who really care very much about the future of the city where a lot of my friends and family are still living in, there's really not a whole lot I can do being this far away other than just trying to bring it up and try to talk it through with as many people here as possible. So yeah, thank you for giving me that opportunity here. So we're going to be sending out prayers, thoughts, aspirations, and hopefully more concrete forms of support to the people of Hong Kong and to people trying to live up to their human rights. Again, thank you, Jerry, for being here. And folks, remember to tune in next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. 
guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every